Though this is Pastor Don's day, he has given me the extreme pleasure of introducing to you uh, our speaker for this, for this morning. Dr. Mark Rutland is a pastor, conference speaker, New York Times bestseller, and columnist for Ministry Today magazine. You may have seen him as he is a frequent guest on the 700 Club, TBN, James Robinson's Life Today, and Daystar. Dr. Rutland also serves on the preaching team of Jensen Franklin's Free Chapel Church. Dr. Rutland is the founder and director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership, which I am, which I am so happy for. It has revolutionized my life. Had to just throw that in there. Um, he is also the founder of Global Servants, a ministry in Ghana and Thailand. In 1988, Global Servants opened House of Grace. Located in northern Thailand, House of Grace is a home for tribal girls at risk of being sold into sexual slavery. Since the time that Dr. Rutland has, was baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Lord has made him to be a major influence and a vital resource in the body of Christ, and particularly within the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement. It seems like from the time he was baptized in the Holy Spirit that God has placed him among Christian leaders for the purpose of leading them through times of turmoil and uncertainty to times of peace and success. Pastors and other Christian leaders from all across the country attend his National Institute for Christian Leadership where he gives them the tools and the confidence to be the leader that God has called them to be in their community. Finally, Dr. Mark lives with his wife, Allison, which is in no doubt his voice of reason in Atlanta, Georgia. Would you welcome to the pulpit, Dr. Mark Rutland. Thank you, Matt. Wow, what a, an extravagant and generous introduction. I'm so glad my wife was here to hear that. <laughs> this is my wife, Allison. Maybe you'd just stand if you don't mind, Allison. This is my wife, Allison. And our granddaughter, Sarah, is here as well. Sarah. She is one of nine grandchildren, she is the, but she's the oldest girl, which makes her the princess in charge of all the females in that line. She has two, she suffers under the domain of two older male cousins, but uh, she's the obvious star. Her last name is Star. Uh, her uh, mother, our middle daughter, is married to a physician, uh, an anesthesiologist, Dr. Brian Starr, and they have been, until this week, he has been the head of a pain management clinic in Northern California, but he was recruited and brought here, and he is now on the staff at the Duke University Medical Center, so we are delighted they have moved here. So... She informed Pastor this morning that she was going to have to cheer for Duke, and it, it felt like a serious blow to him. I could, <laughs> I saw his knees buckle when she said it. I, well, this is, it's a great honor to be here and uh, uh, to join this uh, opportunity to celebrate Don and Carol. I, 
50, 50 years of ministry anywhere is in a variety of things. If you spent 50 years in 10 different churches, it's an accomplishment. But 50 years in the same church is an absolute miracle of God. It's, I never heard of any such a thing. It's so wonderful. The main thing is, how could he have started pastoring here when Carol was only two years old? It's... <laughs> That's, that's an amazing thing to me. That, how, I would love to have seen pictures of that. And it's great to see that you brought Randy here to help with the music. I, I don't know if you could, where I was sitting, I could see him playing the piano during uh, Victory in Jesus. I don't know if any of the rest of you could see that. He, that wasn't playing the piano. That was assault and battery. <laughs> Well, congratulations, uh, Pastor Don. I'm, I'm so proud for you and proud of you and Carol. Uh, behind every successful man, there's a surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> I, I don't know how your mother felt about it, but uh, I'm sure she was fairly surprised. So we're, we're, Allison and I are delighted to be here and, and honored to take part in, in this opportunity to uh, to just uh, say to a, um, a great servant of the Lord who's done a wonderful job, a half a century of leadership in one place, and to raise up a church like this. So we just, uh, we just thank God. Thank you for inviting us. I want, to, uh, I want to just say one word about the book which is out there. I, I hope you will get it. I actually did not want the book to come. I told my office, this is the level of obedience that I inspire. I told my office not to send books. I said, this is about Pastor Don. I, want to, I don't want there to be any distraction. I don't want to peddle books while we're honoring Pastor Don. But evidently, they felt that I did not know what I was talking about. <laughs> so the books are here. I hope you'll enjoy them. It's David the Great. It has been a tremendous, tremendous seller for us, and we thank God. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, let me just say this. You probably don't care to hear this. It's important to me to say it. I'm on a salary as the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and my arrangement with the board of directors is that I don't accept revenue personally from, uh, from ministry source anywhere else. So I don't accept anything to preach here. I don't accept anything for book sales, all of that. Any love offering, honoraria, uh, speaking fees, product sales all over the world, all of that all goes to the foreign missions program at Global Servants particularly our girls' homes in uh, Thailand, which Matt already mentioned, and, and in West Africa. So I hope that you will go out there to the table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> because it accrueth not unto me. And I hope you enjoy the book. Pastor, I, I want to speak this morning uh, on a particular topic. As I, I ask myself, you know, what, I don't want to just preach for the whole time on how wonderful Don is, uh, even though he did send me eight or ten things that he felt I should mention. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I, I. But at the same time, I want to. I want to say something that that speaks of his ministry. So I, I've I've felt directed to to this particular passage of scripture. I want you, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to the book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter. The book of Zechariah, chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. Unfortunately, Zechariah is one of the lesser read or less frequently read passages of the Old Testament, books of the Old Testament. 
tiny little minor prophet snuggled right at the end of the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with Zechariah and you're trying to find it by going to Genesis and turning right, you'll be a while. Go to the book of Matthew and turn left and you'll do better. And, uh, and yet Zechariah is a, is a rich book. It is filled with wonderful uh, language. The Hebrew is rich, English translation is rich, and the imagery is extravagant and filled with very detailed messianic prophecies which were fulfilled in Jesus. This passage which I want to read deals with a particular uh, word I want to use that is there. If you look at the end of verse 7, you will see as I read in just a moment, it uses the word in the King James Bible, grace. I'm not hung up on which version of the Bible you use. I, I like the King James Bible. When I was a university president at two different universities, they used to, the kids used to ask me, why do you always read from the King James Bible? It feels so old-timey. I would say, well, it's, it was loyalty. I went to high school with King James. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, well, he wasn't a king then. We called him Jimmy. But um, the second thing is I, the flowery Shakespearean language of the King James Bible, all the these and thous that offend everybody else, they appeal to me. Uh, and it appeals to my theatrical heart. I like all of that. Uh, but I, I don't, I'm not hung up on it. You don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven, okay? One will be given you when you get there. But, <laughs> but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? You know? I'm teasing you. I'm, teasing. I'm glad to see you folks can laugh. I, you'd be amazed how many churches I go to that just nobody can laugh. And this is a jolly crew, Pastor. You've, you've done well here. I'm happy to see that you don't have a real strong religious spirit here. And, and why would you? I've been knowing Pastor Don for several decades, and he has almost no religion at all. So... But uh, in this particular case, the King James Bible is important because if you're following me in a more contemporary translation, you will see that the, the translators, particularly the NIV, did not translate the Hebrew word grace. It's ken in Hebrew. It means grace. It's translated grace everywhere else. I don't know why it isn't translated grace in this passage from, Hebrew, from uh, Zechariah chapter 4. I think it didn't make sense to the NIV translators for God or Jesus to shout grace. So they translated, if you're following me in a modern translation, it may read, God bless it, which is fine. I guess grace is God blessing it, but it should be translated grace. So we'll read it that way because I have the microphone. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now just pause a moment. I'll give you a little bit of... Uh, um, insight as we read through the passage. Zerubbabel is an Old Testament type. Contemporary preachers don't like preaching typology much, but, but an Old Testament type means a figure, a prefigurement, if you will, in the Old Testament for Jesus. So Zerubbabel, the prince of restoration. So the Lord answered and spoke unto me, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Now let me just deal with the word mountain. Mountain in prophetic writing 
may mean a lot of things. What it almost never means is mountain. It can mean a dominion or a force or power, a a country or a great army or something like that. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. So here's the revised Rutland translation of that. Who do you think you are, geopolitical forces of the present age? Who do you think you are, kings and tyrants and armies? Who do you think you are? When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. (laughs) Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Now, if you'll put your hands on your Bible, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Rush in over the threshold of our souls. Enter in by your might into the inner person of each one of us. Speak to us, O Lord, despite every resistance. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. I uh, I was raised... um, in an unusual home, wasn't a Christian home, wasn't, wasn't a pagan home or something. It was a, a nice, decent home, but it's just very nominal Methodist. We went to a Methodist church whenever my parents took a fancy to go, Christmas and Easter and that sort of thing. But it wasn't, it wasn't a real Christian. If you had asked my father, are you a Christian? He would have said, of course, I voted twice for Eisenhower. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but there was no uh, family devotion in our house. We didn't have a family Bible. We didn't have grace at meals and that sort of thing. It was just sort of a, a, a good secular home with Methodist trappings. Uh, but my mother uh, had a, um, wouldn't have a family Bible, but we had a family dictionary. And my mother, who is a ninth grade dropout, my, my dad lived to be 94 Passed away at 94 two years ago. A tough guy, a really tough guy. He was a combat veteran of two wars. He was a paratrooper in the Second World War. And between wars, he, uh, he switched to armored cav, and he was a tank commander in Korea. An unusual guy to be a, a combat veteran of two wars in two entirely different uh, genres. So he was a paratrooper and a tank commander. Tough guy. And right until the day he died, he thought he could run you down and kick your butt. He couldn't, but he thought he could. My mother is 94, and she can. Um, my mother, uh, my mom and dad probably have as high a native IQ as any people I've ever known. Um, neither one graduated from college. In fact, my mother never graduated from high school. She was a ninth grade dropout, but a brilliant woman. She believed, my mother believed if one could read, one could learn anything. And my mother was a monster reader, is a monster reader. At 94, she still goes to the office twice a week. And, uh, and she's a huge reader. She has a functional vocabulary that would make William F. Buckley jealous. 
she's just a, a brilliant woman. She can, 94, she can walk through a field of wildflowers and tell you their Latin names. Uh, and when we were kids, my mother would open a dictionary and just put her finger in like a racing form, and whatever word it landed on, we had to learn that word. And when I say learn it, I use the term advisedly. We had to learn it, how to spell it, if it was a verb, how to conjugate it, how to use it in a sentence, its, its etymology, its synonyms, its, its uh, opposites, all of these things. I deeply resented these dictionary devotionals. In the first place, it seemed irrelevant to my life. I can remember thinking, I'm in the third grade. Exactly how will I use the word quintessential? <laughs> you know, I, I've always heard about people who are, I, I have a good friend who said he was raised with a drug problem. He was drugged to Sunday school, he was drugged to church, he was <laughs> drugged back to night church. And uh, a lot of times what those people say to themselves is, when I'm out of this family, I'll never go to church again, but that's not the way it works. As soon as they have kids, they raise their kids with a drug problem. They drug them to church and them to Sunday school. I can remember sitting through these interminable dictionary sessions and thinking, as soon as I'm out of this house, I'm going to become an illiterate. <laughs> but instead, what happens is it leaves one with a deep appreciation for words. Words mean things. And, and when a society suffers its... Uh, the loss or, or diminution of its vocabulary, to one extent or another, it loses its ability to think. Because we think in words, not in, not in pictures, irrespective of what you've been taught, we think in words. And so when we lose our words, we may, what can happen is the whole society can feel things emotionally at such a level that it, all of that becomes bottled up, we become angry and and confused because we can feel things, but we don't have the, the boxcars, the words to load those thought on. We don't know how to think them or express them. I can give you an example. The little fifth grade boy who thinks the brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest number that he's ever seen in his life. And he wants to say to her, I really like you, I really think you're pretty, and I, I wish you'd be my girlfriend. But he can't think of the words, so he punches her in the mouth. That can happen in a whole society. Um, words can be hijacked by contemporaneity. They just, history just can just change words. I see a lot of young people here this morning. I want to tell you something. There are words that you use right now to mean one thing, and by the time you're my age and Pastor Don's age, they won't mean the same thing. The same word, it just doesn't mean the same thing at all. How many? I wonder if there's anybody here that can remember, as I do, when gay meant happy. Anybody remember? I want gay back. Who, who kidnapped gay? I want that back. I mean, gay, when I was a kid, gay had nothing to do with orientation. It was all about disposition. Uh, gay just meant happy. Don we now our gay apparel? That doesn't mean Christmas in drag. I was speaking not too long ago in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed, and I was speaking to a high school audience, and I don't know when I've spoken to such an enthusiastic crowd. They just loved it. And afterward, I was talking to a group of boys, and they just were 
just cheering me on. The first boy said, Dr. Mark, he said, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you are not bad. He said, you are one sick dude. <laughs> one can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I remember early on in my career setting my goal to become a really sick dude. The fourth boy was not content with these low altitude compliments. He said, you are not bad. You're not sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. <laughs> As Matt's already talked about, I, I teach the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and some years ago, a young man came through there who now pastors a hip-hop church in Florida. So I called him, and I said, look, if somebody said to me I was the OG of crunk, what, what would I take that to mean? He said, oh, Dr. Mark, that's a, it's a compliment. He's... And I said, yeah, but what does it mean? He said, well, OG means original gangster. He said, you're the original gangster of crunk. I said, yeah, but see, Tommy, here's what I'm trying to get at. What does it mean? He said, oh, oh, oh. He said, it means you be the Mac Daddy. I said, look, look, Tommy, what I'm trying to understand can't you help me to understand what it means? What does it mean? He said, I'm trying, Dr. Mark. He said, it means you be off the chain. <laughs> I just decided to leave it alone. <laughs> I, I, I think there is a certain level of tragedy attached when any word loses its meaning. But when our functional biblical vocabulary begins to be hijacked, how we think about God may actually be corrupted by the words that we use to talk about God. So, uh, some years ago, I, I used to preach the, an outdoor thing called the Minneapolis Soul Fest. We'd be in downtown Minneapolis uh, in a very urban area. We'd put up a huge platform and great banks of speakers and blast the music out about nine decibels above the level where all the birds in the air would drop dead. And... <laughs> And then I'd preach, and we'd get a crowd, and if people came forward to the altar call, the, the platform would be, you know, way how so people came, they would just come up, and the altar workers would kneel on the apron of the platform and work with them. One, one girl came, I saw her standing right in front of the pulpit there with her forehead on the edge of the pl platform, her hair down beside her face, nobody could see her, I realized nobody saw her, so I knelt down there. And I, I said, young lady would would you like me to pray with you? And she said, yes. She never looked up. I said, you want the Lord to come in your life? She said, mister, I need help. I said, great, pray with me. I'm going to lead you. You just repeat what I lead you in. I started, Heavenly Father. She didn't say anything. I said, miss, let me just explain to you. You're going to repeat out loud what I say. Now say it after me. Father in heaven. She didn't say anything. And I said, miss, is there a problem? And that's the first time she looked up. And this eye was swollen completely shut. 
She had a horrible bruise across her cheekbone, like purple fingers like that. And her lip was split right there till I could see her teeth. Tears streaming down her little battered face. She said, you know, mister, I've got all the father I can handle. And I realized her devotional access toward God was not hindered by her passion for God. It was hindered by her misapprehension of fatherhood. That, that, was, the, that was the definition we were going to have to deal with. Now that, that can happen to any word. Here is a word which has come to mean almost everything in the community of faith and therefore has come to mean almost nothing. And that's grace. When I, when I think of his ministry, I think of a ministry of grace, Don. And, and here is a passage about grace. We use grace now in the modern church so often to be like agape mayonnaise. You just put enough of it on anything, you can make rancid ham taste good. But, but what is the definition of grace that is revealed to us in this passage? And it is, it is a beautiful image, a pictorial image here of us on one side of a huge mountain, some rigid, impregnable escarpment that stretches from pole to pole. We can't get around it. We can't get over it. We can't tunnel under it. And on the other side of this massive mountain is our Savior, Jesus. We know that he is our Savior. If there is one passage of Scripture in the evangelical community that is sacrosanct, surely it is this, it's not by works that any man is saved, lest they should boast. But we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. In other words, even the faith to get saved is a gift of God. The problem is that we see that moment as an event, that we are saved by grace. Our names are written in the Lamb's book. Our sins are under the blood. We know if we were to die now, we'd go to heaven. We're saved by grace. Grace has now happened to us. Now, having received grace, we turn and we, what we want is the kind of face-to-face -face intimacy with the distant Jesus who has saved us. We know he has saved us, but now he's on the other side of this mountain and we want this mountain gone so that we can have, as the book of Hebrews says, a tabernacle where I, or the book of Exodus says, where I will meet with you. We want that divine encounter, that face-to-face -face relationship. But this mountain has to be removed. We don't know what that mountain is. It can be different for everybody in the room and everybody in the world. All of those things inside us that gall us and all of those things that, that hinder us, hurt, hate, bitterness, resentment, racial prejudice, unforgiveness, chronic sin, bondages, strongholds, whatever it is, we, we, we want this mountain gone. So we take it into our hands to remove the mountain ourselves. We just run at it, we butt at it, we dig at it, we chip at it, we do everything we can do, and the mountain won't budge. That's where some people drop out. All of you here know someone who says, I'll never go back to church again. And they, they have all kinds of excuses. Oh, it's too hot, it's too cold, 
I don't, I don't like the preacher. I don't like drummers so crazy you have to lock them up in a cage. I don't, I don't like that. By the way, I've been all over the world. This is my first time at an 11-year-old drummer. Didn't he do a great job? That's something. I met him before the service. I said, how old are you, son? He said, 11. Next thing I knew, he's up there like Gene Krupa. <laughs> so so we, we get this thing in our minds. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go back again. I'm not going back to church. We complain. We gripe about something. Some, we find some excuse. What it really is, deep inside, they are aware of this mountain in their lives and in a kind of twisted idealism, what they say is, I'm not going down to that church with all those hypocrites who have mountains in their lives. So they say, I'd rather stay home with my mountain than go and be with all them. Of course, it doesn't bother them to go to a football game or basketball game with all those hypocrites. They just don't want to go to church with all those hypocrites. Because... The fact of the matter is they feel they can't deal with that mountain. So they'll just stay away with it. Others take a different approach. They drape the mountain in camouflage. They, they just pretend it isn't there. We enter into a mutually agreed upon covenant of suspended disbelief. We get out of our cars in the parking lot of Pentecostal churches all over America dragging our mountains draped in camouflage behind us like a ball and chain. And we meet other people coming across the parking lot dragging their mountains. And we say, do you see a mountain in my life? Nay, brother, thou hast no mountain. <laughs> what about me? No mountain there. Let's go to church. And we praise God and worship God and in the supernatural realm over our heads... There is a veritable sierra of unconquered domains. Or we take a third, and this is where most of us are. At one point or another, we have just battered our brains out on the mountain till we fall at the foot of the mountain and cry out to the distant Jesus on the other side, I quit. I quit. Do you hear me? I quit. I've done everything I know to do to remove this mountain, and I can't move this mountain, so I quit. And what we fear, what we think deep within, is that from the other side of the mountain will come a tongue lashing. Because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. You big fat sissy! If you can't play with pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. Pull your socks up and hit that mountain again. I played, uh, I played high school football just at the uh, end of the Civil War. And <laughs> it hurts me when you laugh at me. <laughs> and I played in the old days. I wonder if there's any men here old enough to remember we didn't have platoon football. You didn't have offensive and defensive specialists. You remember that? There were only 18 boys in the high school. You just put your helmet on and played till you died. Remember? <laughs> and and I, I played quarterback on offense, but on defense, I played free safety. And I dreaded our inner squad scrimmages more than any high school game we played. Because the tailback on our own team was the coach's son. 
And he was the most vicious and lethal runner I've ever tried to tackle in my life. If Bobby got through into the deep secondary, he came at you all helmet and knees and demons. And it was, tackling him was just an excruciating experience. And I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bobby's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. But Bobby was on a search and destroy mission. He would chase me. He wanted to knock me over and cleat me on the way in. Finally, I said to Bobby, I said, what is the deal with you? You're not the biggest guy I've ever tackled. You're not even the fastest guy on our own team. And I hate tackling you. What's up with that? He said, you want to know? Come home with me after school. Well, I was shocked at that. As far as I knew, nobody went home with Bobby. Not only was he a vicious and lethal runner, he was a vicious and lethal human being. As far as I knew, Bobby didn't have a friend in the world. I went home with him after school, and we went into the garage, and he pulled down, you know, those old roll-top metal doors? He pulled it down, and all across the inside, it looked like somebody had been hitting him with a sledgehammer. He said, there's your answer. He said, when I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a helmet on my head and made me bend over at the waist and run headlong into that garage door. And I had to hit it every day, 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, New Year's, no exceptions. And any day I didn't hit it hard enough, he would lash my legs with a braided whistle strap. He said, you run into a metal garage door every day for about six years. And he said, 168-pound cornerback just don't look like much. Well, no wonder he was a vicious and lethal runner. No wonder he was a vicious and lethal human being. That is emotional child abuse of the worst order. For a father to force his son to attempt day after day after day after day that they both know is impossible. No matter how he muscles up in the weight room or how perfectly he goes into a three-point stance, no, he's never, ever going to punch through that garage door. Is that your God? If that's your God, then your God is my devil. Stand behind us with the braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness and lash our legs. Pray more. Fast more. Be a better Christian. Forcing us. Yelling at us. Berating us to make us move. Move that mountain. That is not God. Now, God's a gentleman. You want to hit that mountain? God will stand right there on the parapet of heaven with the angels at his elbows and watch you back up and run at that mountain with all your might. And he'll say, here he comes again. This boy is going to hurt himself. God will say, that, that's going to leave a mark. And we try it over and over and over again. Shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. This year I'll be a Christian if it kills me. The only thing is what? It'll kill you. If it doesn't put you right in a religious loony bin first, rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming Jesus loves me, because that is doomed to failure. The Bible says it's doomed to failure. It is not by might nor by power. No matter how mighty you are, no matter how powerful you are, you will never, ever move that mountain. So the liberal humanist will tell you that grace means God doesn't care about the mountain. 
He just winks and nudges the angels in the elbow and the ribs and says, well, there, there, boys will be boys. But that condemns us to the destructiveness of the presence of the mountain. The holiness legalist will tell you that grace means God will finally make you strong enough to overcome the mountain. But that's already, you're already told in scripture, it's not by might nor by power. True grace says, I want that mountain out of your life. I hate that mountain. I despise that mountain, says the Lord. And I want it out of your life. But I will do it. I will do it. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So we cry out at the foot of the mountain, Jesus, are you over there? Because I quit. But from the other side of the mountain comes an answer we never thought we'd get. Good. I've just been waiting for you to quit. Now stand back. And then it says Jesus shouts. What does he shout? Do better. Work harder. Fast more. No, he doesn't shout any of those things. In fact, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he shout? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. It is not by might nor by power, but that doesn't mean that the mountain is irremovable. It means that it's by the spirit of the living God that the mountain is removed. That's the hope. That's the hope. But when we take possession of the mountain, when we take ownership, we, can I coin this phrase? We disgrace ourselves. We degrace ourselves. We ungrace ourselves. We live graceless lives. We live graceless lives. Some churches disgrace their pastors. Not a, not a pastor who will stay in the same church for 50 years. He can't be disgraced. But I've seen it. The pastors, some churches just gripe and complain and criticize about the pastor, nitpick. Let me, let me tell you about a man in a church. I pastored a mega church in Orlando. Thousands of members. And why would you even let a guy like this bother you? And yet you do. Has there in 50 years, has there ever been anybody that's ever said anything mean to you, Pastor? Why do you let that bother you? But you do. It just This guy came up to me after a service. You think you've preached under some level of anointing. And he came up to me in the lobby. He said, well, I'm leaving the church. I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He said, over the lie you told in church this morning. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you talked about a certain battle in World War I, and you said that battle happened in 1917. He said, I happen to be something of an expert in American military history, and I know that battle didn't happen until early 1918. He said, a man that I lie about a thing like that will lie about anything, and I'm leaving the church. I said, well, bye. No, I mean, really, adios. I cannot fix that for you. That's graceless. That's disgraceful. However, let me tell you about another man in the same church, still my dear friend of many, many years, an attorney. After every sermon I preached there, Sunday morning, Sunday, you have Sunday night church here in this church? We, have, we used to have Sunday night then. We were all Christians in those days. And... <laughs> 
So Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, no matter any time I spoke about anything, this lawyer would come up to me and he'd say, Oh, Dr. Rutland, it's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. Well, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I know nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece day after day after day after day, year after year. I know that intellectually, but I just like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. That's grace. That's grace. I know what some of you are thinking. We can't do that with Pastor Don. Oh, you don't know. We pump his ego up. We, can't, we just can't do that. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. I've been in the ministry for 50 years, and I can tell you this, I now believe the entire race of Christians is divided into only two tribes, pumpers and poppers. <laughs> the pumper church is a great church of grace. It's a church of grace. We not only disgrace our churches and disgrace our pastors, we disgrace our families. We disgrace our families. They're, it's amazing to me the things that parents pick at their children about, pride them and, and criticize and judge them. I was the president at ORU. A man came to see me, and you know, thousands of students. I didn't know them all. I couldn't know them all. He came and told me who his son was, and I said, oh, I don't know all the kids here, but your son is a wonderful boy. He played in one of our worship teams. Great kid, a real Christian leader on the campus. He said, I know, I know, I know. He said, that's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, that earring, I want you to make him take that earring out of his ear. He said, I can't even see him. I, all I can see when I look at him is that earring, and I want you to make him take it out. I said, sir, please listen to me. I'm telling you, your son is one of the most genuine, most authentic Christian leaders on this campus. He is beloved, and I admire your son. I'm, I'm a college president in my 60s and I think he's a wonderful young man he said you're not listening to me I don't doubt any of that but he said that earring is destroying my ability to have any relationship with my son look I gotta tell you something I'm old look at me you see this I know that but really it's difficult for me Am I the only one? Sometimes I see boys with earrings, and I just want to <laughs> take that out of your ear and give it to your sister. It just... <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, how big of a deal can that be? So the next day, I called the boy in my office, and I said, son, do you know who was in my office yesterday? He said, yes, I do. And he said, I know why he was here. It's about this earring, isn't it? I said, son, isn't that awful? He said, President Rutland, it is awful. He said, it's terrible. I said, imagine the kind of immature Christianity that would let an earring stand between you and somebody you love. He said, I know it. He said, oh, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I said, son, that earring is standing between you and your dad. He said, yes, but but he's the father. I said, listen, one of you has got to be a grown-up, and I, I've met your dad. 
He said, you're right. You're right. And he took that earring out and laid it on the coffee table in my office. And he said, my father is more important than an item of jewelry. I've never been so proud of the operation of grace in somebody's life. That was grace. We disgrace our spouses. We disgrace our spouses all the time. Guys, listen to old Dr. Mark. I got a word for the married men here. Listen to what I'm telling you. When your wife comes in from the shopping mall with that new dress on, she says, look what I bought. She's modeling that dress for you. She's modeling that dress. She doesn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. What'd that cost? How much that set me back? I'm going to have to confiscate your credit card. That's disgraceful. You know what she wants? She's modeling that dress for you. She wants you to throw the newspaper aside and jump to your feet and say, whoa! <laughs> Baby, look at you! You look like a million bucks in that dress. You wear that on Wednesday night, and we're going to be late to prayer meeting. <laughs> now that's what she wants to hear. That's grace. We disgrace our families. Wives disgrace husbands all the time without thinking of it. Listen to me. Your husband is like God in one great way. So one lady in the back said, this is why I came right here. <laughs> no, your husband is like God in one very important biblical way. The Bible says God has numbered the hairs on your husband's head. So has your husband. He knows exactly how many are left. And he does not need you to remind him that the number is diminishing annually. <laughs> you see my beautiful wife there? When I leave the house to go off on a trip somewhere, she puts her little hands on my face and she says, Oh, Mark, you are the sexiest man in this world. Look up here. I live in the real world. But let me tell you something. A lawyer and a wife that will both lie to you, that's a blessing of grace. Here's the worst part. We wind up disgracing ourselves. We look into the full-length mirror of self-evaluation and we take judgment out of the hands of God and claim it for ourselves. We look at us and we say, look, look at you. What happened to you? Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fat? <laughs> we condemn ourselves. We judge ourselves. You ever hear people say this? I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Have you ever heard that? I hope you've never said it. But I know you've heard people say, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, can I just ask you this? Who do you think you are? I mean, who do you think you are? You are a more righteous judge than God is? If God has forgiven you, who do you think you are? If God has forgiven anybody, you don't have the right to judge them. And if God has forgiven you, you don't have the right to judge you. But we just, we condemn ourselves over petty stuff, not just sin, just petty stuff. Look, this is, this is not real Christianity. You know that, right? 
I mean, nobody commits a really venal sin in church on Sunday morning. Tuesday morning, when nobody is watching, and you slam your own hand in the door of your car. That's real. <laughs> and you can say, oh, I'm going to get a lawyer. Ford Motor Company's going down. Or you can blame yourself. That's what mostly we do. Oh, you stupid person. You've done it again. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Or you can lift that mangled paw aloft and say, Grace be unto thee. <laughs> but we spend so much time, so much energy and spiritual resource trying to convince each other of our perfection. We do it all the time. I, I, heard, about, I heard about a man who sat down at a bus stop and he realized he was sitting next to a a sister, a nun, a Roman Catholic nun. They were the habit on. He looked all around and he said, Sister, listen to me. He said, I don't want to offend you, but he said, I have had a dream my whole life of someday. He said, I know it's crazy, but I've had a dream my whole life of one day kissing a nun. And he said, I, I don't know why, just all the time. But he said, if I could just lean over and kiss you on the cheek, just a little kiss on the cheek, I could die happy. What would that hurt? The nun looked all around and said, well, I don't see what it would hurt if you want to kiss me on the cheek. Just two things. You have to be Catholic and you have to be single. He said, this is great. I happen to be single and I am a Catholic. And she said, all right then, what would that hurt? He leaned over and kissed her on the cheek and then he said, the joke's on you, sister. He said, I'm married and I'm a Baptist. The nun said, the joke's on you. My name's Kevin. I'm on my way to a costume party. <laughs> That's what, that's what graceless living does. Graceless living turns church into nothing but a glorified costume party. We spend our whole lives trying to make everybody believe all of our perfection. I'm going to set you free this morning. I want you to turn to someone near you there, <laughs> not your spouse. I want you to turn to someone near you there, and I'm serious, I want you to do this. I want you to lean over, look them right in the eye and say, I'm not perfect. Go on. I'm not perfect. Say it. Say it to somebody. I'm not perfect. Doesn't that feel good? Cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag. Now I'm going to shock you. Are you ready? Go back to that same person and say, I... Never believed it anyway. Go on. <laughs> you see? All that energy and nobody ever believed it anyway. Look. Let me, let me just try to bring this to a conclusion here. The whole thing is we can descend into out and out game playing just trying to convince each other of our perfection and nobody believes it. Or we can descend into harsh, hard, unforgiving, judgmental legalism. Or we can pursue the path of grace, that which says God is still working on and in all of us, creates whole churches of grace, 50-year ministries of grace. It creates the atmosphere 
of grace where people can walk in the door of a church and say, hmm, what's that? Somebody will say, my friend, what you smell is grace. Well, you're a jolly crew. I would like to tell you, in honor of Pastor Don, I want to tell you the funniest church story that I've ever heard in my whole life. You know the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, don't you? You do realize that, right? And you know the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled. You're, you're not living in that level of denial, are you? I have a good friend who's a PH pastor, Pentecostal Holiness pastor. He told me the funniest story I've ever heard in my whole life. He said that he invited an evangelist to come preach at his church. And he said there was this lady in the church, one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses. You know, Do you have any of them? No? Oh, we'll send you some. Um, <laughs> into every life a little rain must fall. You know, they all think they got the red phone to heaven. Nobody can hear from God but them. So she came to the pastor and she said the Lord had revealed to her this evangelist wasn't supposed to come. And the pastor said what he should have said. He said, well, the Lord hadn't revealed it to me and I'm the pastor. If he reveals it to me, I'll cancel. Up until then, he's coming. I don't need you to affirm it. You don't have to attend. But he's coming until God re reveals it to me. But she wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. He's, the pastor told me the first night the evangelist read his text, began to preach about five minutes into the sermon. That old lady got up in the center aisle and pointed her finger into the pastor's face and said, Whoa, thus saith the Lord, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But thou art not a humdinger, saith the Lord. Thou art a dinger. I said, oh my God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Rutland, I couldn't think of what to do. He said, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in life had prepared me for that moment. He said, it was the evangelist who saved the day. He looked at her, and then he just put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. He just started laughing. And then laughter over here and over here and then the musicians started laughing that's usually where the problems are and the, <laughs> then the musicians are laughter in a church will feed itself and they just start laughing and laughing when that laughter reached a crescendo that mean old lady slammed her bible shuts got underneath the exit sign and lifted her hand up and she said i'll never darken the doors of this church again the pastor said dr utland it was the hour of deliverance Listen to me. There are some things in life for which the only emotionally mature, psychologically balanced, and spiritually authentic response is a good belly laugh. There's some stuff in life that's funny. There are some things about you that are funny. We can all see it. You need to get in on the joke. So everybody's always wanting a word from God, a word from God. Do you get these people, Pastor Don? I, they rush up to me in airports, usually after I'm on Christian television. That brings the loonies out of the woodwork. <laughs> rush up to me in the airport with this deer in the headlights. Look, Dr. Rutland, is that you? Do you have a word for me? I always want to say, yes, read your Bible. 
So everybody always wants a word from God. Here's a word from God. Here's a word. Look right up here. Everybody in these two sections. Look up here. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou, thou art dingers. Look up here. You need this, Pastor Don. Look up here. Thou art dingers too. Thou hast done dinger stuff, saith the Lord. Thou art not finished. But, saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Now that's good news. Now let me close. Listen to this. What if you read the whole, what if you were totally, knew nothing about Christianity, and you just found a Bible somewhere, and you read the whole Bible, and you, your hope's starting to get up. You're starting to have faith. And you come to the The last thing anybody says to you is very important. Last words are important. What if you come to the end of the Bible, the whole thing, you come to the last sentence of the Bible and says, I hate the bunch of you. Would that, would that be discouraging or is it just me? Or what if it said this? Oh, I was just joking about all that salvation stuff. You're all going to hell. Just me? Or what if it said this, some of you are going to heaven and some are going to hell, but I'm not going to tell you which ones and I'm not going to tell you how I decide. That's a little sobering, isn't it? You come to the end of the whole Bible, the whole thing, and it's like God says, why won't you believe me? From the Garden of Eden, from the Ten Commandments, from the Exodus, in all the prophets, in all of the ministry of Jesus, in all the miracles and signs and wonders, in all of the epistles, in the whole Bible, I've said it to you over and over and over again. Why won't you believe me? Now God says, here's my last word on the subject. And here's how the Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God fill the reservoir of your life with grace that it may pour over onto those around you who need it. May God so fill this church with grace that the next 50 years of Pastor Don's career will be grace-filled. God bless you. God bless this great church.